TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? Do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's Adam Grant. Welcome back to Rethinking, my podcast on the science of what makes us tick. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I'm taking you inside the minds of fascinating people to explore new thoughts and new ways of thinking. My guest today is sports podcasting pioneer Jody Avergan. He ran ESPN's 30 for 30 podcasts, developed 538 podcasts, serves as a podcast judge for the Webby Awards, and previously worked on WNYC Radio, as well as shows like Freakonomics, Marketplace, and 99% Invisible. Never heard of them. He was also an elite ultimate Frisbee player. He once made it onto SportsCenter, which is not something we disc junkies get to see every day. Jody's the host of Good Sport, a terrific new podcast from the TED Audio Collective, which is about how sports can make us think differently about every part of our lives. I've been a fan of your work for a few years now, and I, I love the way that you draw lessons out from sports that apply to every walk of life. Yeah. And I guess the, the place I would love to start the conversation is, how did you become so obsessed with sports? Well, it's funny. I mean, that word obsessed, because, you know, when I worked at ESPN for, for a long time, but I worked in this pocket of ESPN 30 for 30, which is really kind of like, let's use sports stories to try and tell larger stories and draw larger lessons about life. And, you know, we love sports, but really we love the lens of sports. And that's really kind of how I think about sports. And I suppose I'm obsessed with that. But there were moments, you know, in the ESPN cafe or whatever, where I'd just start talking to a producer on like Sports Center or something. And I'd be like, oh, wow, like you're really into sports. <laughs> you know, you're really obsessed. You know, all the stats, you know, all the twists and turns. You know, I really love watching sports. I have my favorite teams. I've played sports my entire life. I mean, a big thing we talk about in the podcast is how kind of I learned all my big life lessons through playing sports and now also through kind of engaging in sports and watching it and sort of thinking about it. But um, I'm not actually kind of a deep sports obsessive in the sense of like, I'm not a stat head and I'm not kind of like organizing my life around watching games. And, you know, I think the work that I've done tends to reflect that it is largely you know, sports stories, hopefully for people who don't, who aren't obsessed with sports and sports stories that hopefully get at something a little bigger. 
You you do that beautifully, and you know, in, in many ways, your work reminds me of Mitch Album, mm-hmm. who oh. was my hometown sports columnist growing up. And I remember reading about the Fab Five in the Detroit Free Press, and one loving the game, but more importantly, two feeling like there was so much to learn about teams from yeah. the way that he wrote about basketball. And watching you carry that torch is is pretty exciting. I mean, I think that's where a lot of this stuff connects with so much of the work that you do. Like the stuff I like thinking about the most and the stuff that I've learned the most from is really just about that. It's about teams. And I always play team sports. So I like thinking about kind of humans are really fascinating on their own. And they're particularly fascinating when they have to work with other humans. <laughs> and sports teams are really great, really great venue for that. I think so, too. So tell me about your personal experience in sports. I understand oh Ultimate boy. Frisbee was uh, was probably your peak. I have a very healthy, I think, attitude towards what Ultimate Frisbee means in the larger culture. I mean, I think I, I say this in the first episode, but I'm like, look, let's just get the cards out on the table. The sport that most sort of dominated my life and the thing that I kind of obsessively devoted myself to in my teens, 20s and well into my 30s was this outsider sport that, you know, some people listening will be like, yeah, I get it. You know, it's a real sport. And some people will be like searching for another podcast to listen to. And that's fine. But, you know, all I can say is like, as seriously as you can take anything, that's how seriously I've taken Ultimate. But I also understand it's a sort of outsider sport. And some people don't think it's a real sport or just kind of don't have the sort of that's changing, I think. But, you know, just don't have the the context for that. Well, you may not know this, but you are currently in conversation with the one-time part-time handler and part-time oh. cutter for the University of Michigan intramural okay. championship team. Well, there you go. So let's just turn this into an ultimate frisbee podcast. It could be. No, I um, yeah, I played the University of Michigan many times uh, when I was in college. I, I I'm a big ultimate fan. I guess I got introduced to the game during my diving days. Uh-huh. Um, before diving practice, our coach would often have us warm up by playing ultimate frisbee, and I eventually learned how to throw a forehand. And yeah. once I retired from diving and got to grad school, I felt like I needed some kind of sport mm-hmm. for you know exercise and entertainment and. Started playing Rec League Ultimate and never got nearly as far as you did, but still love it. Right. Look, we could do this for the next hour. But you know, one thing I'll just <laughs> say is because it's a sort of club sport generally and a sort of an outsider sport or whatever, like after high school, obviously there was college to play. But then after college, you know, all the guys that I played football with in high school, you know, maybe a handful of them played in college. None of them played after college. It was just like, oh, it's over. And for me, you know, it's like, oh, there's another level. There's another level. There's another level. And that's a really kind of wonderful thing to be able to carry into the real world to just have sports get harder and harder. And I'm very thankful for that. I guess the place I want to dive in is I want to talk about the fights we have about sports Mm -hmm. and what we can learn from those or maybe not learn from those about arguing. As I was diving into your latest work, I was immediately reminded of this exercise I do in class where I ask my students to name their emotional triggers. What are the events that just cause you to fly off the handle? And it sets up a discussion about emotion regulation and how it's often helpful to to have your teammates know what your triggers are in order to not push those buttons and also to understand when you do push them by accident, it wasn't me, that's actually you. And I will never forget, I had one student raise his hand and said, well, my biggest trigger is inaccurate sports knowledge. (laughs) That's that is really specific. That's the guy I ran into at the ESPN cafeteria, probably. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Right. I mean, he just loses it if somebody quotes a statistic about a sport that's incorrect. And 
Yeah, I recognize that a little bit because one of my emotional triggers is feigned knowledge, which is when someone pretends to know something that they don't. Mm -hmm. And I once wrote a whole book about yeah. how much it bothered me. But why do people get so upset about like, inaccurate sports information? Why do we have such stupid arguments about that? And yeah. what, what do we take away from all this? I think, you know, no surprise, my answer will be that largely I feel like that's reflecting something that that person would probably just carry into a lot of different places. And, you know, there's this particular venue here where you can get heated and it's built around kind of passion and, you know, really great ways. And then in really sometimes toxic ways. But, you know, I would say more than anything, I don't think sports is fully unique to that kind of vitriol. And in fact, you know, one of the episodes that we do this season is about this sense that I've had for a while, but certainly has ramped up in the last four or five years, that kind of the way we talk about everything is starting to feel like the way that we've talked about sports. We go into some of the details of what that kind of arguing looks like, but then also there's a really fascinating sort of concrete history about how particularly the, the worlds of politics or political media and the worlds of sports media are really intertwined and they've learned lots of lessons from each other. And it's not a coincidence that when you see a politician kind of take on the language of my team versus your team, and no matter what you say, it's wrong because you are on the opposite team, then that's my starting premise. You know, and this is a zero sum game, so to speak. When you see a politician talk that way and you feel like, oh, this feels like kind of how the person you were describing earlier talks about sports. It's not a coincidence, right? I mean, those are all media lessons that we've learned. And sports has, you know, I think this is one of the lessons that sports kind of has taught in a bad way the rest of the world, which is kind of like, you can be divisive and you can gin people's emotions up and you don't have to really be reliant on kind of necessarily rational argument as long as you just keep escalating and keep arguing and keep driving a wedge. Um, and we see that throughout sports media, but I would say we see that and, you know, the stakes are obviously much different, but we see that throughout political media and politics itself, too. I, I actually think you can learn a lot of, about somebody's integrity by how they approach sports. Yeah. So one question I love to ask people is, if your team could win on a bad call, would hmm. you want it to happen? Yeah. And my answer is always no. And maybe that just means I'm not a big enough fan to care enough. But I can't imagine ever thinking that, you know, it's worth tolerating an injustice or some unfairness in order to get the result that I want. Right. And that seems to be another element of this, right? People complain about bad calls that hurt their side, but not the ones that help their side. It's this funny thing that in the episode that we did about all this, you know, one of our guests sort of said this and it got me thinking about how like at some fundamental level, there is more empiricism and sort of agreed upon share a shared sort of set of facts in sports than there is actually in kind of much of the rest of the world. And so, yes, you can complain about a call and you can feel aggrieved, but at some level you can just go and say, you know, that was either correct or it wasn't, or that was inbounds or out of bounds, or like there was a score at the end. And, you know, we've gotten to the point in say politics where first off, there aren't those sort of regular checks, right? Like you can be on TV and you can mouth off about how this team is terrible and this athlete's a bum and they're going to lose on Sunday or whatever. And then Sunday comes and they either win or they lose. And you kind of have to test what you said against that. Whereas in lots of other parts of the world, like those kind of tests and that sort of sense of like, well, what I say has to then get measured against something real has completely dissipated or people are just completely ignoring it. And so it's this funny inversion, whereas like it may have been the sort of origin or in many ways or the sort of driver of a lot of this kind of discourse it still actually retains more sort of like empirical <laughs> guidelines or, you know, strictures than a lot, than say politics, where you can basically just 
make it up or ignore whatever set of facts or just choose your own set of facts. Whereas you can't come out of a sporting event and be like, well, I choose to believe that the score was actually 94 to 87, not, you know, 112 to, to 103. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't see that happen very often. Yeah. Jody, it's interesting to me that you sort of see sports as partially responsible for the divisions that exist in our society because I had seen sports more as just a convenient vehicle for an expression of human nature, right? Because we know that some degree of outgroup prejudice and in-group favoritism is present in every single human culture. Yes. There seems to be an, uh, probably an evolu evolutionary adaptation for it that you know, if, if you don't favor your own group, you potentially don't build the kind of community that allows you to survive. And I think that that hard wiring, or at least the predisposition exists, and it seems like you know, sports gives us a relatively safe outlet for it. No, and I think at the end of the day, I agree with you. Well, first off, I should say all the sort of dynamics that I've been describing in a kind of negative light are also some of the things that make sports the most powerful thing, right? It's, as you were describing, we bond together. It's a shared experience. It's like maybe like sports and the weather is like one of the, like the only two things now that you can actually just kind of go into any room and probably engage with someone on. All those things are wonderful, but like everything in life, they also have a downside when they're taken to extremes or when you see people who are operating in bad faith. So I'm not necessarily saying it. it's the origin. It is as much reflection as possible as, as it is origin. And like you see that actually in very concrete ways, like in this episode about how we talk and argue in sports and sports media and political media, you actually see the kind of back and forth, like in something like there's this show called Pardon the Interruption on ESPN, which I love, but it is, you know, two people sit across from each other and they yap at each other about sports. I think it's wonderful. I think it's all the imitators who aren't as authentic that's, that are the real problem. But you have a show like PTI, Pardon the Interruption, in the media cycle, you have all these political shows who are saying, oh, we got to do what PTI is doing for us. And they've adopted all of these, you know, specific techniques, even from like the way the graphics work to the formatting. Stuff. So it flows back and forth in very kind of like nuanced, hard to parse cultural ways. And then also in very concrete ways in terms of how the media ecosystem builds itself. In some ways, it's become a chicken and the egg problem. Yeah. There's a vicious cycle and we don't necessarily know what started it, but clearly these dynamics are self-fueling at this point. Yeah. So one of the things that, that I think is, is more encouraging about sports is what it teaches us about identifying and developing talent. Yeah. I thought your episode on talent hotbeds was fascinating. Yeah. You know, a lot of the episodes that we do are just sort of coming from this little intuition or this little question, you know, and so it's like, doesn't it feel like every argument is a sports argument? Or in this case, like, what's up with all these places that seem to produce over-index, so to speak. Should I use that correctly? You can tell me. Uh, but, you know, it seemed to over-index for producing, like, great athletes. There's all these famous parts of the pockets of the country. Like, all the swimmers are from Palo Alto. Or uh, there's a town in Florida that's referred to as Muck City. It's Belglade, Florida. But it produces, like, these incredible wide receivers over and over and over. This tiny little town. There's quarterback hotbeds. We profile in our episode a ping-pong hotbed. This community center in Milpitas, California that has just produced, like, dozens of Olympians coming out of this small little community center. And so, you know, the, the sort of throwaway explanation is, oh, there's something in the water, you know, but the question is, what is that thing in the water? What did someone put in the water? What is the water? You know, all those things. This is water. I don't think we came up with a formula necessarily, but I did feel like I learned a good amount about what it takes to build a hotbed. But then to your point, really the, the thing to think about is opportunity. And what does it mean? I don't think it's that the, the raw talent is innately 
higher in these particular pockets. I think it's more that for some reason, more doors have been kept open for longer, giving more people a chance to walk through them. I think so much of how we develop athletes, how we develop colleagues, how we develop ourselves is about kind of, can we keep those doors of opportunity as open as possible and sort of let people's thinking about what they could be, be as expansive as possible for as long as possible, because, you know, people take their own paths towards walking through those doors. And so what I really learned from looking at some of these hotbeds, it's really that people have set up these systems to provide opportunity for people. And it's not that everyone there could turn into an Olympian or a professional athlete. Ping pong coach kind of puts it in formulaic terms. He's like, I got to find 500 people. 50 of them are going to be really committed. 10 of them are going to be really, really good. And one of them is going to be an Olympian. But the question is, you know, how do you just keep that funnel as open for as long as possible? Because that person who ends up being the Olympian may not be at the front of that line when you have those 500, right? And everyone kind of takes their own path to that moment and you have to just accommodate for that. I think you're onto something really important here because when I started listening to just your analysis of this ping pong hotbed, I thought, oh, it's a genius coach who has a better system. And that's not at all what you discover, right? I mean, the coach is a part of it, but I think the way that you zoom in on opportunity is extremely powerful. I guess I was struck by the small town pattern that you hit on. It reminded me of some research by Jean Cote and colleagues, which shows that if you're studying NBA basketball players, major league baseball players, NHL hockey players, or professional golfers, athletes from small towns end up being overrepresented among the elite. That's interesting. That's the exact opposite of what I would have expected. I would have assumed that a larger town, you know, there's just more sheer opportunity. I'd love to dive in a little bit further to try to figure out why that is, because I think in the research, the effect is clear, right? We know there's an advantage of coming from a small town. What we don't understand are the mechanisms, and there's a lot of speculation about them. And I think you you actually uncovered a few of the factors that are are probably important. So talk to me about what those ingredients are in these small towns that lead to great talent. Well, and one one thing actually about the small town thing, I mean, it, it occurs to me that even within like large city, like New York City basketball produced point guards throughout the 80s and 90s, you know, and just like that was a a real thing was these brilliant point guys coming from New York City. Talk to those point guards and they don't talk about being from New York City. They talk about being from Queensbridge or from Red Hook, Brooklyn or whatever. Like it's small and it's a hotbed, right? And you have this kind of drive and this talent. So what are the ingredients? You know, one of them certainly is these things cycle on each other. I mean, this happens in like Muck City, this small town in Florida. There was a Super Bowl a couple of years ago where like the b- best receiver on each team was from Muck City. If you're a 12-year-old in this town in Florida and you're just seeing two kids from your high school at the Super Bowl, it just sets some sort of bar. I you know, I'm convinced it just sort of sets some sort of trigger. And I think that maybe that has a little to do with the small town dynamic of like, oh my gosh, someone from my town made it. Now the next generation sees that, the next generation sees that. Certainly like good coaching is a big part of it. And, you know, the guy in Milpitas, California, he's a great coach, but he gets coaches from India and brings them over. He gets them green cards. He works with them. He sets them up with housing because, you know, those, he finds the best coaches and that really pushes people. Um, A ton of competition at all levels. Actually, we talked to Bomani Jones, who's a really great thinker about sports in this episode. And he actually mentioned the New York City basketball example. And, you know, he was saying that one of the reasons he thinks that that was particularly important 
uh, one of the big factors in, New, in the rise of New York City basketball was that you just could get on the train and you could go to another place and find incredible competition within like 20, 30 minutes. And now we have like these AAU systems where like 18 year olds are flying around the country and they're playing each other and they're finding that really good competition. But I also just think like being able to find really good competition, you grow when there's, when competition is just, just beyond your grasp, right? And being able to find that consistently and conveniently is a huge part of this. The one thing that I hadn't really thought about that really jumped out at me in this episode, particularly talking to this guy, Rajul, who runs the Milpitas Community Center, the Indian Community Center in Milpitas, is he invests in the kids in every sense. You know, so obviously he's like training them in ping pong for kids who can't afford lessons. He's giving them free lessons. He's working with the parents, but he's also setting up other programs at the community center. He'll do a Taekwondo program to bring in a kid. And then maybe that kid wanders over to the ping pong table. He talks about how he goes to the local farmer's market and he sets up a little booth and he just sort of spreads the word and he gets to know the parents. He gets green cards for his tr coaches. In talking to him, I realized like, oh, you know, it's a community center. This guy works at the community center. And that's like not a coincidence. Like he has worked his way into the sort of DNA of that community. And moreover, I think has realized that if you're a coach, if you're a leader, if you're trying to nurture someone's talent and give them opportunity, you have to not just invest in them as kind of a product. Uh, you have to invest in them as a real human being and get to know them. And all the best coaches I've ever kind of talked to or admired, they're the ones who invest in the people that they're coaching as, as human beings, fully rounded human beings. And that really brings out the best in them. I like the Dean Smith version of this, where he told his star basketball players at UNC that he would do what was best for the team during the season, but what was best for the individual in the off season. I love that. And that meant if you had a shot at being you know, a high draft pick, he would encourage you to leave yeah. and go to the NBA early, even though that would end up hurting the Tar Heels the next season. I think some of the best examples of this are, you know, Steve Kerr is really, I think, really good at this. He comes out of that Phil Jackson. The Warriors have this, like, you know, people throw that word culture around a lot, but I think it really does matter. But when you talk about kind of what was special about this season, sometimes people will just be like, oh, you know, it was, we had a two-day break when we were on the road and we all went out to dinner or we all went hiking together or, you know, coach would have us over on Friday nights just to be, you know, have our kids play with each other or whatever. I did a piece um, for 30 for 30 where I worked at ESPN about the Miami Heat taking a photo in response to the death of Trayvon Martin, where they all put up their hoodies and, and sent out a photo. And it was kind of this big, I think, watershed moment in modern athlete activism. And particularly you had LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, like some big, big, big stars kind of stepping out there and, and taking a political stance in a way that hadn't really happened for a generation, I would say. And so one of my questions going into it was kind of, I wanted to get a sense of like, how hard was it to make this decision? What led to this? And journalistically, I was like, oh, maybe we'll get a story of a really tense locker room conversation where some people didn't want to do it and some people did. And, you know, the, people were realizing like, oh, this, there's risk here. You know, if we take this stand, it'd be easier to play it safe. And over and over, I talked to them and they were just like, no, we didn't, we didn't actually think about this that much. It just felt natural. And over and over people would just, and even, you know, LeBron James would just talk about how like, no, because our locker room, our culture was such that we just, we were always talking about the real world. We were always talking about each other's kids. We were always kind of invested in each other as people. And so then when this 
big thing happens in the world to a kid, it's going to be natural that we're then going to talk about, well, what if that was my kid? What do we feel about this? And we took this step. It was almost like they just kind of didn't even think about it in this weird way. They just, it just felt natural in that way. And it was such a reminder to me that, you know, especially that team, I think in the sort of history of the NBA is often thought of as like, oh, it's a super team. It was like put together with all these various superstars, but, but like really that team's success was about actual genuine kind of culture and, and humility and bonds between these people as, as real human beings. Yeah, which didn't come overnight. No. The, the super team was not successful in their first season. We didn't do an episode about this this season, but it's on the list. But I mean, I'm very fascinated and I like a asking athletes of all stripes, who's actually the person who who brings you all together? Who's actually the the star in the locker room? You know, they call it glue guy, I guess is the cliche. And that team is such a good example of that because there's this guy, Udonis Haslam, who's been on the heat forever, is kind of at this point, the like keeper of heat culture, as they say. But, you know, you walk into a locker room and it's like, three of the most famous basketball players in the world and all of them without hesitation will be like, no, 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 that guy, you see that guy over there sitting in the corner, you know, that like not many people wear his jersey, like he's the one who makes it all tick. And I, I love that. Yeah, I remember talking to Shane Battier about mm -hmm. the glue guy role he played on that team. And there's there was this incredible moment when I think LeBron had to guard Kevin Durant yeah. and he was trying to figure out how to shut him down, which pretty much everybody in the league had struggled to do. And he knew that Shane had spent a lot of time studying stats and he just kind of went over to him and said, hey, hey, Batman, like, what should I do? And from his look at the data, Shane said, you know, make him shoot over his left shoulder. Yeah. So LeBron does, he misses it. And that then opens the door to a whole season of conversations where Shane can start feeding his stats to mm -hmm. elevate LeBron's game. Funny part of it for me was Shane saying, you know, if, if LeBron had forced him left and he had scored, right. he probably would have tuned me out. Yeah. <laughs> I got really lucky that the stat, which might have been a 5% improvement in defense, happened to pay off the first time he yeah. acted on it. But I mean, I think what you're really describing there is, is trust, right? And at the sort of underneath culture is trust, right? And do people trust each other? Do they trust that the other person has their interests in mind as much as anyone else's and good teams, good workplaces, good civil societies, you know, are basically, it's all about kind of trust and cohesion. There's a level of humility required there too, right? So yeah. you see it with Shane being willing to dive for loose balls, you know, study the stats, do a lot of tasks that are, are really not only unmeasured, but unappreciated. Yeah. And you see it in LeBron, right? Yeah, Saying, absolutely. I don't know how to shut down a player who's right now vying for MVP against me. Yeah. He might be better than me. Yeah. And so I need some new tools well, to be able to beat him. And you see it in Steph Curry, who I really think is kind of like just a wonderful example. As famous and as lauded as he is, I think weirdly undervalued as a leader. We just don't really realize what we have on our hands, I think, sometimes with him. I think we do with LeBron, and rightly so. I think we saw it last year when they went to the finals and they won the finals. There was one game where Steph did the kind of like, I got to put the team on my back. I'm going to score 40 some points and just like will us to victory. And I remember watching it in real time and being like, okay, he just flipped the switch. And if the Warriors are going to win, he's just going to do that three more times. And no, he comes out the next game. He takes a step back. He empowers Draymond Green. He brings other people into the fold because he just, I think he's both has that intuition, but also I think he's done, I know he's done a lot of thinking about this stuff. And he just realized like, no, I'm not gonna get three more wins by being everything on my shoulders. I need to empower trust. I need to you know, bring people into, into the fold. There's a, a 
cliche that I kind of like, or a thing that I've sort of bring up over and over, especially I've coached a number of sort of like, I guess you can call them all-star teams, like national teams going to like a world championship and you're trying to pick like the 15 best players from across the country or whatever. And the thing that I always say in tryouts there is your job is to make your teammates look good, right? And if you just have that as your singular focus, A, that's what we're looking for on this team and B, that will get noticed, right? And I think a lot of people fear that doing all those things you were describing with Shane Battier won't get noticed, but I think that's not on you to make sure. That's the mark of a good coach. A good coach will notice that and look for that in a team. And I, you know, and I just think that that's a lesson that applies in so many parts of the world, which is like, if you can just make the people around you look good, you will look good as a result. You will get your moment in the sun. You know, you will get your validation. We all deserve that too, right? We all have egos. We all are kind of the main characters in our own lives. Like we should get that, you know, but I think a lot of the just try and make others look good is such a great just sort of thing to keep front of mind. I, I think that's at the very heart of of what I would call being a giver as opposed mm-hmm. to more of a taker. And I think that's that's something we don't see covered enough in you know, in players like Steph Curry. Obviously, everybody respects Steph Curry as an extraordinary player, and you assume that his teammates will give him the ball because he's that good. In psychology, that would be called expert power, mm-hmm. right? I, I defer to you, or you know, I, I trust you, or I'll follow you because I know you're exceptional. But I think what you're describing is also a form of what's considered to be referent power, which is I will follow you because I like you, yeah. I respect you as a human being, we have a strong relationship, and I trust you. What have you seen from your time as an athlete and a coach and also from studying all these different sports about how people earn that trust? Probably the hardest thing to do, and it's the most ephemeral thing, right? You can lose it more easily than you kind of can build it, I would say. But I do think a lot of it has to do with this kind of what I was saying, you know, what we were discussing before about bringing your full self to a project, right? And I think when people open up and connect with each other and really invest in each other and get to know each other as real people, then that colors the way that then we see the decisions you make in whatever project we're working on together, whether that's a sports team or a, a workplace or or whatever. There's a number of episodes that sort of circle around this idea, but that like, you know, the best thing you can do when you're trying to build a team is let people feel like they're fully themselves and they're bringing their full selves to it. It's not just show up, do your job, kind of get whatever sportsy thing out of it, but more like this is a place for, what's the, I'm about I think I've never said self-actualization out loud in my life, but it's kind of that, right? It's, it's like, it's, it's sort of that, you know, this is a place where I can really learn something and grow as a person, not just kind of like play this sport. It's funny, that's like something that I've thought about a lot with this series and just sort of my thinking about sports that I think to some people, the idea that like sports and the real world reflect each other and collide and combine, like that's messy to them and they don't like that and they'd rather do the kind of like sports is just fun it should be over here that makes so little sense to me because i'm kind of like wait a minute you're telling me that the thing that is really fun to do that like keeps me in shape that like gives me a chance to maybe like hoist the medal at the end of the of a season will also teach me like how to be a better human and how to like trust others and how to build teams and like is a place where i can also like figure out all these things about the real world, which I'm going to have to go back to anyway at some point. Like, I'll take it all. Like, I love the messiness. Like, it just feels like what a gift, you know, that this world can kind of do all these different things for us. And so that's really a sort of 
the spirit of, of the show or a lot of kind of what I'm thinking right now is just sort of like really embracing that you can kind of use this world to to learn all sorts of lessons and puzzle all sorts of things out. Let's go to a lightning round, sure. if you're ready for it. Please. Got some rapid fire questions for you. First one is, what has been your greatest life lesson from Ultimate Frisbee? Yeah, there is a cliche called get comfortable being uncomfortable. And a lot of athletes kind of do that. And I just, I think that that's one of my strengths is I am not phased that much. Sports really taught me that. And then I went to live radio right after college and it was just like it's sort of the same thing. Like this thing is going to happen. We're going to have to figure it out. We're going to make decisions on the fly and then we're going to move on. Building on that, what is something that you've learned in the radio, audio, podcasting world that you think everybody should pick up? Interesting. Well, I mean, one of the things I love about the radio, audio world and podcasting world is it is still the case that largely speaking, like it is very entrepreneurial. A lot of people do a lot of different things. You kind of do it all. And you have to think like a producer first and foremost. I came up at a, at a time not that long ago where it was kind of expected that you would be like doing research and, you know, developing stories, doing research, doing reporting, cutting the tape, doing hosting. You know, I love that that ranginess of thought. And I kind of think that there's still that spirit in, in this world. Whereas, you know, you look at the world of film or whatever in these industries where it's like been much more regimented and, you know, you have, well, I'm an editor. I don't touch the script. You know, I'm just a cog in the wheel. I do this one specific specialized task and then I move it down the line. Uh, who's a coach that we should all learn from who's not well known? I think you've got one in table tennis. Are oh, there others? Um, well, I'm currently very infatuated with this guy, David Thorpe, who is a basketball coach. He's pretty well known. I mean, he works with some NBA players. He's on a podcast called True Hoop, which I just really, really love. And they break down basketball, but more than anything, they just talk about kind of, you know, great teams and cohesion. And when he talks about when he watches the games, he gets super frustrated because the cameras always look at the court and he's like, I want to look at the bench. You know, I want to see how close are they sitting together? Are they like have their hands on each other's knees? Are they high-fiving each other when they come off the court? Like he just looks for that kind of like, is this team cohesive? He just talks about sports in a really compelling way. So he's my current favorite coach. And is there a sport we should study that we don't know enough about? Ultimate obviously being one, is there <laughs> another? So Ultimate Frisbee was in the um, World Games this past year. And one of the other sports that the people I talked to who were there and watching other sports were really into was tech ball, which is this sort of table tennis combined with soccer and, and often feels like combined with like karate or something because, you know, people are kicking up high and trying to kick the ball across. We do an episode about kind of which sports break through and how like everyone's really into F1 right now or whatever. And, you know, um, I'm not, but, you know. Unrelated note, why are so many people into pickleball now? Your first explanation has to be pandemic related. And so I think it's probably like, it's something you can play in small groups. It's something where you're not sweating and up against each other. It's something you can pick up fairly easily. So it feels like something new that you could do in the context of this time when it all felt like we were languishing. You know, and there's probably specific things like it repurposes, right? It repurposes equipment that's already there. Sometimes those little things really do have a huge effect. Like I think one of the, the reasons that like Premier League soccer took off in this country in part is because it's just on at a time when other stuff isn't on. And just that little sort of nuts and bolts explanation has a huge part of it. And so I think pickleball that like, the equipment's really light and you can do it on the tennis court that you could probably already have walked to within a couple minutes, like that has a big part in it. What would you say is, is the most underappreciated sign of potential in an athlete? Here's a very specific thing that I like seeing and I think tells me a lot, which is 
who are the players who immediately after a play is done, go over and talk to another player and sort of debrief, figure it out, puzzle it out. And so I love looking for that specific thing. Not the player who just puts their head down and walks off and gets some water, but the player who immediately on the field for 15 seconds after something happens, has a little conversation. Which which sports cliches do you think are relevant to other parts of life? And yeah. which ones do you think we should leave on the field? There's a reason that good teams will warm up the same way every single time in practice, because it means that then when they go to a big game or an away game or the conditions are different or whatever, they have this little protective bubble of routine that they can walk around in. It's like, we're going to do the exact same warm up no matter what, whether it's a practice or the championship game. And it just gives you that little sense of calm and so forth. So I really love thinking about that bubble of routine. I think you can apply that in a lot of different parts of our life. But I once had a, a teammate talk about how, like for all teams, there's one basic sort of cycle that they that they operate on, which is kind of imagine a sort of three stages in a circle that sort of feed into each other. And it's like the team has fun. So then they work hard. So then they play well. And then when they play well, they have fun. And when they have fun, they want to work harder. And then when they work harder, they play better. And it just goes round and round and round and round. And that's pretty, pretty simple, but it's a nice sort of little metric. The sort of insight that I, beyond that was him pointing out that not every team enters that cycle at the same spot. And the real problem is when you have a team that thinks it's a have fun team, when actually it's a work hard team, or often you have a team that's actually a have fun team, but they just yell at each other and they want to work really hard and they never get in on that cycle because they're banging up against the wrong entry point. And I think about that so much. It's kind of like, what is this, this collection of people or even my own personal entry point into this cycle? And am I kind of trying to bang into, you know, bang down the door of something, or should I find another way to get in on that and then let that sort of natural cycle take over? What about on the worst cliche list? Which one would you like to ditch? The worst one. I mean, the one that, the one that, the one, and it's so classic, but it really, I think, is, can be problematic. You know, the whole there's no I in team thing. I mean, it's like clearly there's an I in a team, right? Like it's a collection of individuals and we should honor that. And like the best teams, as we were saying earlier, are the ones where people feel like they do get to be I, they do get to be themselves. I like the way you characterize that, Jody. It reminds me of Marilyn Brewer, the psychologist who talked about it in terms of optimal distinctiveness hmm. and said, you know, at a basic level, everybody wants to fit in and stand out. And I think in a great team, you have that sense of belonging, but you also have a unique role to play and you're able to say, I make a difference here. I have a contribution that's not totally replaceable. Yeah, and also like the season's going to end, the game's going to end, you're going to get older, you're going to retire. And it's like, what are you going to walk away with? Well, you're going to walk away with yourself, right? And hopefully you will have learned something about yourself and made yourself a little better in addition to kind of helping the project of the team. You always have to realize that that's, that's really going to be the lasting thing out of all of this. I just I want to go back to something that we didn't talk about yet on the the talent hotbed discussion, which is yes, please. it. I think you know when you think about these small communities that produce disproportionate numbers of great athletes. Something else you I think put your finger on that's that comes up a lot in the research is the idea of not being forced to specialize too early. Mm -hmm. In a small town, nobody gives up on you when you're eight years old and says, you're never going to make it uh, because there's not necessarily somebody waiting to take your place. 
nobody pigeonholes you in one slot and says, you know, you're too too slow to be a wide receiver or you're too weak to be a running back. Talk to me about that a little bit. I think the best hotbeds, you know, that's the sort of keep your foot in that door of opportunity for as long as possible. Because when someone sees a door close or has a sense that a door is not open for them, they pretty quickly, they don't need you to tell them that, right? They learn that lesson and they'll cut themselves off and they'll limit themselves. Rajul, the ping pong coach we talked to, table tennis, sorry, Rajul, I apologize. The table tennis coach we talked to, um, <laughs> he, you know, he talks a lot about how like some players don't come along until they're 13, 14. And all of a sudden they just accelerate and they push past the pack, you know, and the kid that you thought was maybe going to be an Olympian at 11 just sort of stays stuck in second gear. He said, and I think this is largely the case, the, the differentiator often when you're talking about those sort of differences between, you know, you're really, really good and you could be in the Olympics. It's the mental game. And that is something that's often takes a long time to come together. I mean, some people just have it, so to speak, and I just like have mental resilience from age eight, but like age eight to 15 is a pretty tough time for your brain regardless. And when you combine that with sports, like it's no surprise that sometimes people don't put it all together. And often that last piece of the puzzle is that sort of mental resilience and that ability to kind of stay calm under pressure and take coaching and, and all those things that are that can take a while to, to figure out. Well, Jody, your your work makes us better. Oh, so boy. I'm grateful for it. <laughs> Excited to tune in for the whole season yeah. of the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. I should say sports is fun too. I know we've been very serious. You know, we've been overthinking it. It's really <laughs> fun. It's great. I cry. It makes it very fun to watch, very fun to play. And I want to kind of honor that too. And I think we have a little bit of that in the series as well. <laughs> Talking with Jody got me thinking about how much we overuse the word team. Not every group is a team. People come together for all kinds of reasons, but in order to be a team, you actually have to share a goal and rely on each other to achieve that goal. Rethinking is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Cosmic Standard. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Asia Simpson, Samaya Adams, Michelle Quint, Ben Ben Chang, Hannah Kingsley Ma, Julia Dickerson, and Whitney Pennington Rogers. This episode was produced and mixed by Cosmic Standard. Our fact checker is Hannah Matsudaira. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. I, I want to do a, a deep nerd dive into Ultimate, but maybe we'll save that for the end yeah. if there's time. Bonus, I, think there I, think are... I think they call that bonus episode material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or the, the part that everyone else skips. <laughs>